You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And today, we're going to take a look at an interesting new book that's out that's going to challenge a lot of long-held beliefs about the nature and meaning and values of rural America. Um, Get get ready. This is going to be an interesting discussion and and, uh, try to open yourself, my listeners, to... uh, kind of some different angles here that uh, I certainly found the book very provocative and uh, I'm glad the author wrote it. I think it's a needed contribution to the discussions of where we're at as a country right now. The author's name is Stephen Kahn and the book is called The Lies of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't. Uh, Steve is um, the W.E. Smith Professor of History at Miami University. That's Miami of Ohio. So he is here in the Midwest, not down in the Southeast. Hey, Steve, thanks for taking the time to be on today. Robin, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I have to explain to people a lot, uh, no beaches in uh, Oxford, Ohio, no Cuban food. It's the other Miami. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just had a guest uh, from Miami, that Miami, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but this is an interesting book. And I I, I want to start off, as I often do, your reasons for writing this, which is back in the acknowledgement sections, which I thought was pretty interesting. But share with our listeners how you came to uh, this wasn't your typical topic, uh, but you were kind of led into it. Great. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. So professionally speaking, I often identify myself as an urban historian. Um, I've done a lot of publishing in that area. Those are those are the colleagues that I have, the conferences I go to. So almost 10 years ago, I wrote a book which I thought was a piece of the urban history discussion. It was called um, Americans Against the City. And what I was interested in exploring in that book was what I see as a central paradox in, in American life, which is to say that we are a highly urbanized nation. About 75% of us live in metropolitan areas of 500,000 or more, and yet we are filled with people who don't really like cities very much. And I wanted to kind of explore that. So it's not a bad little book. You know, I can recommend it to, to listeners, um, Americans Against the City. But, but that, So that was 2014. And then when the 2016 election cycle really started to heat up, and then after the election itself... I found myself being uh, called by by a lot of journalists. Uh, I got you know invited to do a lot of talks about the what what we were now calling the urban rural divide. People kind of discovered this book and and thought that it spoke to that issue. That wasn't my intent with that book, but it seemed to have hit a nerve. And I felt a little bit, uh, how do I want to say, just a tiny bit ashamed because I actually didn't know much about rural America. As I said, I'm a, I'm an urban history uh, uh, specialist. So I promised myself that, you know, when the dust all settled, I was going to sit down and write a book about rural history uh, and, and 
sort of uh, uh, the book that you've got in your hand there is uh, is is my um, fulfillment of that promise. So let's get right to it. Does rural America exist the way we we know it? We we've been told or that we've been yeah. brought up with this idea of urban, rural, suburban. Does does it really exist? And in what form? No, no. Next question. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so the first thing I want to point out, uh, and I and I start off with this as well. Uh, we 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 really shouldn't talk about rural singular. Uh, we need to talk about rural plural, uh, because in fact there are lots and lots of different kinds of rural. And I think one of the problems we have talking about it is that we we miss out on that kind of diversity. So one of the things I just point out is that uh, large parts of Iowa are surely rural and, and they're agricultural, it's dairy, it's, uh, it's corn and beans and whatnot, but large parts of West Virginia are also rural and it's, and it's coal mining and it's, and it's kind of post-industrial coal mining if you've ever driven through West Virginia. Large parts of uh, uh, you know the the Southwest are rural, but that's a lot of native South uh, native rural, right? So all of which is to say there are lots and lots of different kinds of rural. And one of the things I wanted to kind of get us away from was the uh, was the easy equation that rural means agriculture and rural means simply Midwest, because uh, as I said. There are rural parts of every corner of the country, and we ought to think about all of that uh, when we talk about rural. You know, I, one of the interesting things that I, I learned, too, is that as uh, somebody who's been following this, as my listeners know on this show, uh, quite a lot, the urban-rural divide and how it played out politically. Um, th th it's no secret that most of rural America has been in decline here in the Midwest. I live in a rural county. There's no question we've been in a state of decline with population loss, economic stagnation, and we'll get into some of this a little later. Um, but I think you show that this has been going on for quite a while. And the, yeah. you, you questioned the use of the, of the word crisis in this that yeah. I'd like you to talk about. So one of the things when I started writing this book and when I started, you know, uh, having these press interviews after 2016 and whatnot, um, that was the word that kept coming up. Crisis, 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 crisis in my part of the Midwest. I don't know. I don't know how how this plays where you are uh, in Iowa, but certainly the crisis here most immediately means opioids and and now and fentanyl and it was methamphetamine before that and and so this you know that crisis crisis but you know one of the the, the real pleasures of uh of being a historian is is that you get to put some of these things in a deeper perspective and i discovered that people were using this kind of language all the way back to the 1870s um and and you mentioned population loss in in your own home county and i you know it, it the, the census of 1910 reported significant population losses in rural counties, especially in the midsection of the country, and people writing about a crisis. And, and this is, you know, 1910, 1912. So it's been, we've been, we've been using this language for over a century. And, and it sort of occurred to me, well, if we're still having the same conversation with the same language, then maybe this isn't the right way to talk about any of this in the first place. Maybe we need to kind of break out of this uh, pattern of, of of crisis and decline or, you know, resurgence and crisis that maybe we need to think about this in some other way. Steve, what do you think? I mean, 
Okay, this has been going on for a while, but something changed here in the last ten years, politically. Uh, I th I think it's got it, it's got its roots some in economics, some in culture, but it, from a historian's perspective and the, the research you've done for this book and all, something's different. I mean, the the share of, of vote for Donald Trump and Republican candidates has skyrocketed. Well, went up a lot in political yep. terms. Uh, in these rural counties. What was it that triggered this? I mean, Democrats are really scarce in these areas. And on the counter side, uh, the votes for Democrats have gone way up in cities. Yeah. So, uh, so, so let me preface my answer by saying I'm a historian. Uh, and again, one of the great pleasures of being a historian is that most of the people I deal with are dead already. Uh, and so they aren't going to argue with me. So I will I will do my best with that caveat to offer some thoughts. Uh, first of all, I think that in some ways uh, what we're seeing is percentages of votes that are being more and more distilled by population shifts themselves. So that if you are a left of center person and you find yourself, I, I'm going to make this up, in some a rural county in the middle of Missouri, and you feel that, you know, this is not a place you're enjoying living, uh, then maybe you pick up and you move closer into St. Louis or Kansas City or something like that. I think that some of the demographic work that was being uh, put out, you know, 10 and 15 years ago called the big sort has played a lot with this. People are more mobile. It is easier to be more mobile. Your economic life is not necessarily attached to your location the way that it once was. So I think you you see that maybe in, in a more concentrated way in some of these rural counties where there aren't a lot of people to start with, so that the shift of a small relatively number of people can have an, a, a larger impact at a statistical level. Um, the other thing that I wish I had written about, uh, I thought about it, but but I decided I just didn't have the chops or the time to really do it, is the role that religious institutions play in rural areas uh, and the extent to which, if, if you're in a, I mean, I see this all the time out where I live in Southwest Ohio. You come through a small town, uh, you drive down Main Street. Uh, I, I, I go through two of these towns on my way to campus. Uh, Main Street is largely shuttered. Uh, the retail has all been replaced by some ginormous Walmart out on the bypass. The school system has consolidated. So now, you know, there's a big high school, but it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And it's 45 minutes by bus, uh, you know, from, from this little town. The, the only institutions now that constitute community uh, in many places are, are religious institutions and particularly Protestant religious institutions. And I wonder increasingly if, if they aren't having a disproportionate shaping of political values uh, because they are many of them conservative. And here's where those cultural issues, abortion, uh, gay marriage and and uh, even racial integration to some degree um, may the churches may be uh, in a sense um, uh, the places where those issues get brought to the fore for people uh, because they're really you know the the we know that folks aren't union members anymore uh, maybe once upon a time your grandparents were were a member of the of the local Czech. Uh, immigrant society, but that's not really true anymore. Um, and so, as I said, these churches may function, uh, might, may have an outsized role to play in people's sense of community life and therefore where they get their ideas, their information, their values. 
values. We hear a lot about rural values and the Jeffersonian ideal of the yeoman farmer. And uh, you mentioned how uh, political candidates have talked about rural values as the real American values. Um, And you kind of take that apart a little bit. Uh, Can you talk about that? So uh, if if I'm impatient with anything here, um, it, it is precisely that. That the notion that the 75% of Americans who live in a metropolitan area are somehow not real Americans is a little confounding. I've lived in a small town now for 20 years, uh, surrounded by uh, farm fields, big ag, and, and all the rest. I have lived in a variety of urban neighborhoods in Philadelphia, Boston, uh, New York. Um, I find people to be essentially the same. I find the values to be essentially the same. I've met warm-hearted, good, community-minded people in both places, and I've met people who I walk across the street onto the other sidewalk to avoid in both places. So I don't think that rural places have any particular purchase on on somehow American values. But I do think that's been a constituent part of this rural mythology for two centuries. And I think that also, um, uh, uh, it doesn't help our conversations about what we might do about the future of places that are struggling and 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 what, what kind of future do we envision for them uh, to somehow think that, well, these are the real Americans. Uh, no, we're all real Americans uh, for better or worse. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is Stephen Kahn, who's the author of a new book that uh, I recommend uh, listeners maybe pick up and look at here. It would be an ideal Christmas gift. Uh, The Lives of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't. Uh, Steve's a professor, W.E. Smith, professor of history at Miami University in Ohio. Um, we're talking a little bit about some of the foundations of the book. Um, and I, of course, I had to jump the gun and get right into politics, but I want to move back a little. Uh, you talk about four areas uh, in the book you, you've broken out and how rural America's kind of uh, had similar experiences in each of these areas as the rest of the country. Um, I'd, I'd like you to touch on each of those briefly. Um, I, I, I was particularly interested in uh, several of them, and I don't want to go on too much here, but just touch on each area if you would, uh, just a bit. So let me go back to what I said a moment ago. If we're not going to talk about crisis, if we're not going to get into that, as I said, sort of circular argument, is rural America in crisis? No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Then how do we talk about it? And what I decided to do was to ask this question. I think that there are four big, I call them forces, maybe there's a better word, that have defined the United States since the end of the Civil War. The military, the rise of big corporations, the rise of industry, and then the development, especially in the post-Second World War era, of the suburbs. So I said, okay, well, these are the big things. This is what I teach in my survey classes. Let's look at uh, how each of those uh, impacted or in turn was impacted by rural places. And what I discovered is absolutely uh, rural America in this sense hasn't been left behind by the big forces of American life. Often rural America has been at the very uh, front of that particular parade. So we can start with the military and notice just how many uh 
communities in rural areas are attached to, dependent on, whatever you want to call it, uh, military installations of one kind and another. And and I, I was interested to examine how that relationship really changes the the social economic ecology of rural places. So I look at, at uh, Fort Hood, Texas, which is a Second World War era uh, army training base, now the largest army base in the country, and how it completely transformed that particular patch of rural uh, central Texas. And then I looked at the Sawyer uh, Air Force Base on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which um, was a was a post Second World. You know, the Air Force is created after the war. This is a, this is part of our Cold War. All right, the Cold War took place on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan with nuclear armed B fifty twos coming in and out. But that base was closed in um, in the nineteen nineties after the Cold War was over, and the and the Defense Department was was realigning and consolidating bases. So having been dependent on that base for so many years, the people up in Marquette County find themselves now without an economic base, right? So so in, in some ways, the military cuts both ways. Uh, it's it's good if it's there, and then it proves to be really problematic when they leave. And, and they also tend to leave behind a lot of toxic messes, which they're not so good at cleaning up. When you look at industry, uh, one of the things I was really struck by is, is the extent to which since the 1930s, at least, the federal government and state governments as well, but the federal government in particular has been promoting the industrialization of the rural countryside as a solution to the problem of jobs. If we need fewer and fewer people to work on the farm, which, which again is a trend that's over 100 uh, 125 years old, then what are we going to do with people who live out there? The solution is, let's move some factories out there. Let's uh, the, the word that gets used in the 30s is decentralize. Let's decentralize our industries. And I, I looked at the way this takes place, particularly in the auto industry, which essentially leaves the Great Lakes area, the manufacturing stuff, and it moves down, essentially down I-75 and I-65 uh, into a variety of rural places. So, so rural people now um, are as are, are part of the industrial workforce. And again, I don't think that's really part of the myth that we have, the Courier and Ives poster or the, uh, you know, the Norman Rockwell painting. I looked at the way in which large-scale corporations uh, have shaped and have been shaped by rural places. Um, in particular, I was interested in looking at retail and the way in which uh, in, in the first generation, in the 1.0 version of this, um, rural people were the and rural money were the ones that built JCPenney and uh, Woolworths. Uh, those both start in very small towns and they proliferate in very small towns. They struggle after the Second World War for that's a whole, for a whole other variety of reasons. But they, in a sense, the void that gets filled there is Walmart, um, which starts in a very small town in rural Arkansas and it proliferates in rural places all around the country. Now, I didn't write too much about Walmart. I got really interested in the in the poor man's version of Walmart, if that's quite the right way to put it, and that's Dollar General. One of the things, uh, Robin, that I was just stunned by was there are about 3,500 Walmarts around the country. And by anybody's best guess, there are $18,000 generals. And I know I, I did some work uh, in, uh, in Iowa on this and the kind of controversies that Dollar General has caused 
uh, over the last couple of decades in Iowa. Um, so, so again, these are all, you know, it, Dollar General is an immensely profitable corporation. It is the most successful retail stock on the New York Stock Exchange over the last quarter century. And all of that money is being made uh, in rural places, in small towns, in out-of-the-way corners, and so on and so forth. And then finally, I would put it to your listeners that in some ways, the biggest single threat to what we call rural is from real estate developers who are gobbling up rural spaces, and, and usually this means agricultural land because it's already nice and flat, uh, and, they're, and, and they're building uh, subdevelopments and McMansions and all the rest of it there. Um, I was really interested in looking at suburban development, not as a, in, not from the, from the city looking outward, but really from these rural places watching this, you know, I call it a tide of developers roll in, buy up all the land. And as I said, once you put the, the house on the field, that's the last crop. That's it. Uh, and so we see the transformation of and, and what some people call disappearance of rural because it gets turned into suburbia. So very quickly, those were the four things I wanted to hit on. I want to follow up with just a couple there I, that I thought were interesting. The suburban part of your research was really interesting because you demonstrate using data how uh, only part of the growth of suburbs was how we generally think of it, that city people moving out. Right. It was also, it had to have been uh, rural people either already there or moving in, which also yeah. shaped the politics of the area. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that. I did some research in a place called Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, which uh, which is just outside Minneapolis. And in the 1950s, had the distinction of being the fastest growing suburb in the state. Uh, so it's it's that classic post-war, you know, baby boomer kind of place. So I went to the Historical Society there, which is run by volunteers, wonderful people in a community center. And I said, look, I, I said to the guy who runs the place, I have this hypothesis that the people moving into Brooklyn Park are not just leaving Minneapolis, but they're also coming in from northern Minnesota, from North Dakota, from all of these counties that are losing population at the same time. So this is what I'm here to try to study. And he looked at me and he said, well, that's me and my brother. Uh, because they had grown up in the Red River Valley of Minnesota. Uh, there was no work for them there once they graduated high school. And, and he's now, this, this guy was now retired in his 70s. So he and his brother packed up and they moved to this suburb. They didn't move into the city, but they moved into that, that inner ring suburb. So yeah, so I think that happened all over the country is that when you, when you think about these rural counties depopulating, they're not moving to Chicago or Detroit anymore. They're not going to the Twin Cities. They're going to these newer suburban developments. And I do think that that's had an impact on the politics of suburban areas to an extent we, we haven't really appreciated yet because we just haven't studied the question in this way. Really interesting that, that and, and, and I, you, it's the third rail maybe, uh, I'll touch it, you did, that, uh, you know, contrary to the, the, the image perpetrated in rural America of lifting yourself up by your bootstraps, independence, uh, you, you know, independent of government help, rural America is propped up a lot by government subsidies, not just yeah. farm subsidies, uh, but in other areas as well. And this has been that way for quite a while. 
Uh, it's been this way since the 1790s, uh, as a matter of fact. And again, uh, you, you know, we go back to my discussion of the military. We know that, uh, let, let's take the Homestead era, right? Let's, uh, the post-1862 Homestead Act, the only reason, the only way in which those pioneer settlers were able to come out in the trans-Mississippi West was because the U.S. Army had cleared out Native people in the first place. With, and, and I've got these documents I use with my students, petitions from some of these settlers. This is from the seven, uh, 1880s, 1890s, petitions to the federal government saying, you better send the troops out here fast because uh, we got Indian problems. And, and I mean, the language is almost exactly that crude. So without the U.S. military, none of this is possible in the first place. Fast forward uh, 100 years later, um, and what, especially in the West now, what the federal government makes possible is the ranching and agriculture in dry places through an extensive network of dams and other irrigation projects that actually start with Teddy Roosevelt uh, and continue right up to this day. Can I make fun of uh, Barry Goldwater for just a moment? Um, in 1964, when, when Barry Goldwater from Arizona uh, ran for president, in, in his stump speech, he used to like to use a line which said, hard work and pioneer spirit made the desert bloom. And that's all true. I, I, I take nothing away from that hard work. But it was also a lot of federally subsidized water that made the desert bloom. But Barry Goldwater didn't want to talk about that part so much. Um, but it is part of the story. It's an unavoidable part of the story. Steve, I've only got like a, a 90 seconds here, I, and, and we've left so much untouched. Uh, it, it, again, for listeners interested, get a copy of the book. But I wanted to just close and open it up. What it, You obviously learned a lot here. What was the big, biggest surprise, maybe something we haven't touched on yet, that you found in the course of your research on this book? I think the biggest surprise for me was just the extent to which we have been worried about rural America long before I thought we were. Um, and and so when I'm looking here in the middle of the 19th century and people are, are fretting about rural America and especially agricultural America, that I think was a real surprise to me. But again, that's, as I said, that's one of the great reasons, you know, why I love being a historian uh, is that you can really, you can go back and you can put this stuff into some deep context. And, and I'll, I'll just add one last thing for our listeners. Uh, Steve mentions the... Uh... The, the Grant Wood painting uh, in, in uh, American Gothic and how different that image is of the way farming is now, which most everybody is aware with corporate farming. But uh, again, you, you'll have to go buy the book to see what he has to say, and it's worth it on that alone. Um, Steve Kahnsman, my guest today, he's the author of a new book that I recommend called The Lies of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't. It's a very, very timely book and a great addition to uh, maybe your Christmas list here uh, coming up for the holiday season. Steve, uh, thank you so much for uh, being on Heartland Politics today. Robin, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to your listeners for listening to me.
to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.